Let's pray. Father God, we come with our uh, muddled and even stressed minds. The Christmas season speaks of peace and knowing your presence. In reality, it often delivers stress and minds distracted from you. Come now into this time and place, Spirit of the living God, uh, and speak to us. Show us more of who Jesus is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I see the Hobbits starting on Friday night. Um, I can't wait. Maybe you think it's the, the worst thing in the world and the biggest waste of time, but I can't wait. Um, if you've been following the, uh, the sort of pre-match build-up, the big discussion, and certainly the big question in my mind, is how Peter Jackson is intending to stretch the one story over three movies. Uh, I was quite surprised when I heard he was splitting it in two a couple of years back, and then recently we've been told uh, it's going to be in three parts. So he's taking one story and splitting into three parts. I feel a little bit like Peter Jackson this morning because I'm taking one chunk of the Bible uh, and I'm going to have to have uh, two goes at it because I don't know how to deliver it in one go. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm scheduled to preach from verses 16 to 71 of John chapter 6. And as I look at the passage, I don't see any way around it but to split uh, that big long section into two bits if I'm going to do anything worthwhile with it at all. So, this morning we have Bread of Life Part 1. Next Sunday you have to come back for Bread of Life Part 2 if we want to cover this part of John's Gospel. Okay, let's let's get going. I want to deal very quickly with the the story of Jesus walking on the water. just really want to, to flag up a couple of things as we look at it and pass through that story recorded for us there in verses 16 to 24. Notice in verse 17 that Jesus missed the boat. Okay? The disciples got on a boat to cross Lake Galilee and John tells us that it was dark and Jesus hadn't yet joined them. So what's going on here? Jesus a bad timekeeper? Is this the verse I should quote back at people when they're giving me jip for arriving late somewhere? I don't think so. I think the the clue in this passage is is when you take it with the passage that you looked at last week uh, with David, the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 6. When Jesus asked Philip the question about where to get food to feed the crowd, the gospel writer tells us he asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus, in that instance, was testing his disciples to to see how they would respond, what they've been learning. And I think there's something similar going on here. Jesus misses the boat, lets the guys set off without him into the dark, into a stormy sea, because he wants to test them. He wants to see how they're going and how they're growing. I think he already has in mind what he's going to do. And just very quickly, have you ever considered that the same dynamic is still at work 
in our lives with Jesus today. That at least some of our difficult circumstances are tests. That Jesus, that our God, our Heavenly Father, is allowing us to experience difficulties, to allow us to to mature and grow. Even the absence, and, and by the way, that's what we have in this story. Jesus chooses not to be with the disciples, at least not in a way that they know. Even the absence of God. Do you understand that that might just be God testing you? Withdrawing his sense, uh, the sense of his presence, to see if you can can grow, to see if you can trust him even when he's not obviously with you. Just a thought. It takes me to a second thing to notice in that story in verse twenty. What Jesus says when he appears to the disciples on the lake, he appears, um, and he says, "It is I." Don't be afraid. Time and time again, when God appears, when an angel of the Lord appears, when Jesus appears, we find them repeating this idea, don't be afraid. Whenever Jesus sent his disciples out to go and start their their own missions work, he said, don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. To his disciples who'd seen him transfigured, who'd seen him in something of his eternal glory, he said to them, get up from where they'd fallen to the ground and don't be afraid. Folks, this is the characteristic thing that God still says to us as he approaches us. Don't be afraid. It's me. Are you being tested in the circumstances of your life today? Don't be afraid. Are you doubting your own worth? He says, don't be afraid. Are you afraid of God? Don't be. Don't be afraid, he says, it is I. Let's move on to this longer passage and chunk, the one that I'm going to have to split in two. I want you to notice something at the end of the passage that we'll use as a backdrop to help us as we move through the passage. If you look at uh, verse 66. From this time, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's quite stark, isn't it? Everything we've seen so far in John's Gospel is pretty positive. You'd think, yeah, Jesus is saying incredible things, he's doing incredible things, and people are going with it, but not here. By the time we get to the end of chapter 6, a whole lot of people are saying, no thanks. This isn't for me. So, we want to look at chapter 6 with that backdrop. What's happening here? What's going on? That, that so many people are just deciding to, to, to part company with Jesus, not to be his followers. And folks, the reason that's a good question is because it's still a good question today. 
Lots of people who know something or even quite a lot about Jesus choose not to go with him. And we want to know why that is. What's at the heart of that? So, so we'll keep that question in the back of our minds as we look now at some of Jesus' own teaching in chapter 6. To understand what Jesus is saying in, in verse 26 and following, we, we need to bear in mind that the, the story that you dealt with last week, so the early verses of chapter 6, David dealt with them last week. It's Jesus feeding the crowd of 5,000 out of a wee lad's lunchbox. And that got people talking. I mean, it's bound to. But it got them talking not in the way that Jesus wanted. So look at verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Probably reads a bit weird to us. Why why would Jesus have thought that the crowd wanted to make him king? What are the ingredients in the mix that would would make that dynamic likely? Well, there's a couple of things. We're talking about Galilee. Everything that we're talking about here happened in Galilee. The Galileans hated the Romans. And if there was going to be a violent uprising against Rome, you could bet your last dollar that the place it would happen would be Galilee. The folks up there were always looking for a new leader, a new person who they could follow, someone who could lead them in their rebellion against Rome. You could hardly blame them because the the religion that they followed encouraged them to look for a Messiah, a a king, someone to come and to liberate them. So in verse 14 here, they're quoting from Deuteronomy 18. And that's a passage where God promised to send a prophet Something like the great Moses. Think about Moses for a second. Was he not a a freedom fighter? A liberator? Someone who brought a whole nation of people out from captivity under the, the Egyptian slave masters? Well then surely God's chosen Messiah, when he comes, he'll he'll do something similar. And Rome is here and the oppression's here. This is ready, we're ready for a Messiah. Of that nature. So Galilee was full of that kind of expectation. But it's not just the place, it's the time as well. Look at, look at verse 4 of the chapter. John tells us that these events happened during the Jewish Passover. Do, do you know the Passover? The Passover is to the first century Jew what the Battle of the Boyne is to an Ulster prod. It's the time in your history that you look back to where where you see God giving you some sort of a a victory that you then celebrate year after year after year to keep that memory alive. For a Jew, the, the Passover was the time they celebrated their rescue from Egypt and each year they had an annual celebration of the Passover. So the Passover is not just an ordinary day or an ordinary time. It's a time loaded with significance and meaning. So here's the thing. If you want to start a revolution, where do you start it? You start it in Galilee. And if you want to start it, when do you start it? You start it at Passover. That's why there's this stuff going on 
about a king and people trying to make Jesus a king just after he's fed a crowd of 5,000. In the circumstances, as, as I'm saying here, you can hardly blame the Jews uh, for seeing it this way. They, they want to make Jesus a king. This is the moment they've been waiting for and the man they've been waiting for, or at least so they thought. Jesus has other ideas. So what does he do? Quietly slips the crowd and takes himself offside, gets up into the hillside to be by himself. And it's against that backdrop that we now start to read in verse 26. I tell you the truth, Jesus says to the the crowds, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. What you Galileans need to realize, Jesus is saying, is that there are two kinds of food, two kinds of bread. There's bread that fills the stomach. It's bread that rots and dies and goes to the grave with our bodies. But there's another kind. There's a bread that feeds our our souls and it's destined, he says, to last forever. And the trouble here is that you're thinking only about the first type about the bread that, that feeds the body. You think it's about filling tummies, about your own tummies and others, and you've missed the reality that I'm offering something much, much greater. I'm here to feed souls. You've seen the miracle, he says, but you've missed the sign. Do you not realize that when I look at a crowd, I don't see just hungry tummies that need a meal to get them through to tea time. I see starving souls. When I fed their tummies, that was a sign, a pointer to the greater thing that I want to do for these people to feed the deepest needs of their souls. Folks, Jesus still says the same today. And we mustn't misunderstand them. Jesus never said that issues of politics, political freedom, economic justice were unimportant. Read the Gospels and you'll see that that clearly wouldn't uh, be his view. We can never accuse him of being indifferent to the plight of the poor or the oppressed. But the political activists of his time and of our time may not like what they hear Jesus saying because Jesus is no political Messiah. He could have been. And this is the moment where he could have made all those choices. He could have been, but he chose not to. And Jesus lived in a world every bit as politically uh, volatile, every bit as socially divided, every bit as economically deprived as ours, and some But he chose to approach that world with a message that was fundamentally spiritual in emphasis. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. We need to get this. We need to understand this, otherwise we don't understand Jesus. We need to avoid the tendency that there is and has been throughout the history of the church to politicize 
the Christian message? Hear me when I say it's right for a Christian person to be passionate about justice and freedom. But hear me too when I say that it is wrong to equate the kingdom of God with some political ideal or radical ethos. That position, when you read the biblical text, has no integrity. Jesus was not a political messiah. Jesus came with an uncompromisingly spiritual message. And it seems to me that in this passage that that's part of the reason why the Galileans didn't accept them. And the same is true today. If we went out into Ballyhackamore and our message was this. Jesus has come to feed the hungry. Jesus has come uh, to bring peace on earth. Thousands. Almost to a man, a woman, a boy and a girl, people would flock to be a part of a community like that. It's because Jesus tells us that something else is more fundamental even than that. It's because he tells us he's concerned about our souls, our eternal souls, and not just our bodies, that he is rejected. Just as they did in that day, they do today. People reject Jesus because of the spiritual nature of his message. Today I'm flagging up a couple of the reasons that I can see in this passage why people didn't get Jesus. The first is the the radical spiritual nature of his message. The second is his extraordinary claims. We've already thought about this a few weeks ago in John chapter 5. Jesus, after he had healed the man by the pool, spoke to the religious leaders, and he claimed to be the Son of God, that he claimed to be equal with God, he claimed to bring life to people. Today he's dealing with an entirely different crowd, these Galilean peasants, but he's still making extraordinary claims. Uh, Look closely at verses 34 to 40. Jesus uses the word I, me, or my 17 times in seven verses. If my kids were doing that at home, if they were talking around the table like that, they'd they'd get a good telling off. You can't be talking about me, I, myself, all the time like this. Jesus does it and he doesn't even blush. He says some incredible things about himself. Verse 38, he claims a divine origin. I've come down from heaven. Listen, if somebody stood up in our service and said, by the way, guys, I've, I've come down from heaven, you'd put them in the corner with the other guy who said he, last week that he arrived in a UFO. You just, it's, this is not normal stuff to be saying. He claims divine origin. He claims a divine mission. He says that he is to do the will of him who sent me. And what's that? What's the will of him who sent me? Is it to become a a nice vicar somewhere in a nice quiet parish? Is that what God's calling him to? Is it to to be a doctor? No, he says it's to, to raise dead people. Jesus just won't ever be done with these outrageous claims. 
that he makes for himself. Look, look at the, the verses where he talks uh, about his claim to a divine ministry. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I fed your tummies on the Galilean hillside. But I'm here to feed your souls. To give you food and drink that won't ever fade. Jesus is reminding us here that you don't live by bread alone. Life's more than food. And maybe you're here this morning and you think that's dangerous talk. Marx has told us, you might say, that religion is the opium of the people. You know that religion is used to keep the the poor happy with their lot, a, a way of pacifying them. Marx may have said that religion is the opium of the people. Jesus Christ says exactly the opposite. He says that it's the material things of life that are the damaging drug. He says that it's when we drug ourselves with food and drink and all the other stuff, when we make that what life's all about, that we are then anesthetized to the important spiritual realities that are at the heart of what it is to be a human being. We miss out on real contentment and satisfaction because we'll settle for food, drink, and other stuff. You know the song from 2009, Lily Allen's song, The Fear? She speaks very eloquently, I think, of the the state of the modern British person. She says, I'm a weapon of massive consumption It's not my fault. It's how I'm programmed to function. I don't know what's right and what's real anymore. And I don't know what I'm meant to feel anymore. And when do you think it'll all become clear? Because I'm being taken over by the fear. Souls absolutely shot to bits because the material side of life has so much taken over. Folks, all that materialism will ever offer us is a a downward spiral of dissatisfaction. Because you know this. You know that when we buy stuff or when we consume an experience, we need more the next week and it needs to be bigger and better to keep us interested and keep us motivated. And it, It just never ends. The truth is it's it's a looking in the wrong direction. We have spiritual hunger in us that no amount of stuff is ever going to help us with. We have a God-shaped hole in our lives that can't be stuffed with anything else. Only God himself can fill it. That's the point Jesus is making to these Galilean peasants. He says, forget about the, the, the food you had on the hillside last week. Forget about the food that Moses gave the people uh, the manna in the, the desert all those years ago. There's a bread from heaven here and now. And it's not a something, it's a someone. And it's me. 
Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. This was the bread they couldn't swallow in the end. We were asking the question why people reject Jesus. They couldn't take it. Jesus was just a local lad, they said. Look at verse 42. Is this not Joseph? Sorry, Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. They couldn't receive from Jesus. He was too ordinary, too down to earth. And it's still the same today. There are, there are many who can't receive from Jesus. They want to, they want to do something. If Jesus had come among us and said, here's how you get eternal life, you give to charity. Do you think people would go for that? I think they would. Or if Jesus said, here's how you gain eternal life, it's by practicing yoga in your bedroom three times a day. If we thought that's what it all boiled down to, we'd find a way of of doing that. But Jesus said something different. He said eternal life is something you find. And it's in me. He said that it was tied up with him, his supernatural person. Eternal life, folks, isn't something I can possess. But it's a person who lovingly offers to come and to possess me. And to nourish me back to fullness of life. We started today by noticing that a lot of people don't get Jesus. And I pointed you to verse 66. John tells us that a lot of disciples were walking away from Jesus at this point. Look at verse 67 and with this we close. When, when this, these crowds are turning and walking away... Jesus turns to the twelve, his closest friends, and he says, You don't want to leave me too, do you? I don't know if there's a vulnerability in the Son of God here that we don't often give much time to. You don't want to leave me too, do you? And it's the question that rings through the ages for those who have come to know Jesus Christ, who have come to see what he's about, who have come to see what his agenda is. You don't want to leave me too, do you? Well, do we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read these accounts of the things that you did and the things that you said, we're discovering that your kingdom really is your kingdom. Lord, we're discovering that you 
have told us what life with you is really all about. You have defined what life in your kingdom consists of. Lord, we're beginning to see that we can't sign you up to our agenda. We can't wrap up our own preferences, our own passions and desires in a Christian wrapping paper and approach the world that way. Lord, help us to, to see Jesus in his entirety, the stuff that we intuitively like and the stuff that stretches us and demands our all. And help us to choose still to follow. Help us not to turn back and to walk away. But help us to choose to go and to begin the journey of a lifetime with Jesus. Amen.